Open in the Bible to Matthew chapter 5, verse, beginning at verse 21, on page 810. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21, we're going to look at uh, that through verse 26, page 810. If you would please stand. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison." Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to be together uh, this morning. We thank you for our brother David. Uh, Thank you for his uh, recovery thus far. We pray for his continued recovery. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that This morning as we gather, we will be gathering around your word to hear your voice as you speak to us. We pray that you would please send the Spirit upon us, the same Spirit that moved Matthew to record these words, that same Spirit, Father, we pray, will open our ears and our hearts and give us grace, Father, today, that we might hear your voice, believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I, uh, in the last couple of years, have become a uh, court TV addict. Uh, I don't know if you guys have been following uh, the various court cases that have been uh, dominating the headlines lately, but there's a very interesting court case that was on court TV and basically throughout media in our country, uh, a murder case, a double homicide in um, Hampton, South Carolina, uh, a very prominent prosecutor and attorney named Alec Murdaugh was charged with uh, killing his wife and uh, younger younger son. And it was a, a remarkable uh, thing to watch, uh, to be there in the courtroom and to see the witnesses of both for the state and for the defense come up and the cases being made and just the uh, craziness of this crime that has uh, really I think, gotten a lot of our attention. And it was interesting to be doing that during a week when I was reflecting on what the Lord has to say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, the subject of which is murder. Murder. Uh, You don't have to watch court TV. You don't have to watch the big high-profile cases to know how awful murder is. Of course, uh, watching it on TV makes it all that more graphic, uh, but you don't have to watch it on TV to know how awful murder is. 
Um, if you did a little informal poll, I guarantee you that murder would be recognized as a particularly terrible, terrible thing to happen, uh, something about which there, uh, there's, uh, there's nothing worse than, there's nothing worse in our minds than taking the life of another person. Uh, the sermon title today is Murder Most Foul, and uh, that's a fairly famous line from Hamlet, Shakespeare's play about a, a king named Hamlet who was murdered, and his son, also named Hamlet, was involved in the revenge for his death and all those things. And uh, Shakespeare's just one of a, of a virtually countless number of authors of every generation who've reflected on how heinous murder is. It truly is most heinous. And the, the court judge uh, in, New, in South Carolina who presided over this case, a guy named Clifton Newman, and I've got to say I've become a big fan of Clifton Newman. I, I joined a Clifton Newman fan club. Uh, he really did a great job presiding over a difficult case. And in his final comments as he was preparing to pronounce sentence, on uh, Alec Murdoch. Spoiler alert, he was found guilty. If you haven't heard that, that happened. Uh, and Judge Newman had a, a line in which he says that murder is the most heinous crime known to man. And I think there's probably a lot of truth in that. So this has been an interesting week to be thinking about those things as I'm looking at the Bible in which the Lord Jesus talks about murder. Um, now, all of Matthew so far has been teaching us about the king and his kingdom. That's actually the name of the sermon series. And right through the first five chapters, the Lord is, well, he's interacting with this idea of kingdom. Uh, he shows up in chapter four. Uh, he makes a uh, a, uh, a summary statement of his preaching, chapter 4, verse 17 of Matthew's gospel says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus understood himself uh, to know that he was here proclaiming the kingdom, calling people to respond to him, turn to him, uh, follow him, and repent. Uh, but actually, Matthew's already been telling us this. In fact, uh, if you look at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which is a Hebrew word, the anointed, which had to do with kingship. And it says he was the son of David. And of course, David was the preeminent, the stereotypical, uh, the symbolic representation of the king of God's people. That's Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The wise men come and bring gifts for the one who is born king of the Jews. Um, Jesus is shown again and again to be a king. And here in Matthew chapter 5, he begins to fill out what it means to repent, what it means to be a part of this kingdom. So I'd like for us to think about that today and actually over the next several Sundays. Uh, next Sunday, uh, Mark Toombs is going to be here to preach. Mark is the uh, assistant pastor over at uh, Redeemer uh, PCA in Rockwall. Uh, he's been here before. You know Mark. He's a great preacher and a great teacher. He's going to pick up with the very next passage. 
And what we will see this Sunday, next Sunday, and for the next several Sundays, Jesus is describing his kingdom in terms of what, well, what life is like in this kingdom that Jesus has come to proclaim and has called you and me to be a part of. What does this kingdom look like? What does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of heaven which Jesus tells us is at hand? Well, I want to bring you three uh, applications, three ideas, three points uh, that fill out, begin to fill out what this kingdom uh, looks like. And the first of the several points that we will look at over the next several weeks. And the first of the three points I'm going to point out to you today is this one. Uh, What does the kingdom look like? Uh, First of all, it has to do with being instructed. It has to do with being taught. Uh, If you look at uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, you'll hear Jesus making reference to this. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now what's he referring to? Of course he's referring to the Old Testament law, which he's already referred to. We looked at that last Sunday. Jesus understood that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law was actually upheld by Jesus. He looks to the Old Testament law as important in the kingdom. And so he's instructing us here. And what he does is he says, you have heard it said, again, in in reference to the Old Testament, specifically in reference to the Ten Commandments, in reference to uh, different places. Uh, The footnote tells us that this particular quote comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. These uh, parallel references to uh, the idea of murder in the Old Testament. Jesus here brings it up and he says, you've heard that. He's not abolishing that. The kingdom includes this idea that we don't commit this most heinous sin, that we don't commit this most foul action towards another human being. So Jesus is going to instruct us. But interestingly, he's not simply going to say all the different aspects of what it means to kill someone. He's actually going to go much further than that. He's actually going to help us to understand what he means when he says in chapter 5, verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's going to tell us that that what that Old Testament teaching was pointing towards is actually more inclusive. It's more demanding than simply not killing anyone. I I look around the room and I don't see anybody who I think is likely to have committed murder. I haven't read anything about your trial on court TV, which is my source for all information about that. Uh, If you did it, you did it very quietly and maybe got away with it. But the fact is, most of us, most of us haven't murdered anybody. The scribes and the Pharisees knew they hadn't killed anybody. Uh, They thought of themselves as having completely complied with the Old Testament law, with their rules and regulations they had come up with. Well, Jesus says, you've heard that said, but I am saying to you, this is, this is the king speaking, okay? At the end of this sermon, the people are going to be amazed at the authority Jesus shows. Well, here Jesus is saying, you've heard what the Old Testament has said. I'm affirming that. But verse 22, 
I say to you this other truth. Verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Murder makes you liable to judgment. Alec Murdoch learned that the hard way. Well, here Jesus says that if you're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment. It goes a little further. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And then he says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. This is, this is a remarkable passage. Jesus takes the most heinous, the most awful thing we can imagine a person doing, murder, and he's saying that's subject to judgment. Well, get this. Also subject to judgment is something you and I don't take very seriously at all. And it's something you and I do on a regular basis. Probably multiple times today. We've expressed anger. We've insulted people. We've called them names to put them down. You fool. I'd say if we have a besetting sin in our day and age in this world of court TV and social media, we've become an angry bunch of people. It feels sometimes like we get angrier when we turn on that computer or we switch on that smartphone and, and there's a level of distance and, and we just pour out anger. Just ugliness. Insulting language. If you spend any time at all in those things, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. People just get crazy, so mean to each other. And calling someone a fool, well, that's pretty mild to some of the stuff I've seen online. So Jesus is actually saying, if you do those things, if you are part of those things, if that's part of the way you relate to other people, well, you're liable to judgment just like a murderer is liable to judgment. Probably won't be a police car sitting out in front of your house when you get home because you've been angry today. But Jesus says that in the kingdom, that kind of anger is actually extremely serious and the Lord actually puts it right next to the worst thing we can think of. Murder. Murder. I don't think of anger in that same way. Apart from him telling me this, I, I wouldn't really think of it that way. I think of it as something pretty minor. I think it is not a big deal. Well, Jesus begins his talk here about sin and, and the reality of life in the kingdom by saying that anger and meanness and ugliness towards people, putting them down, insulting them, Jesus actually says in his kingdom, just like murder... This is a serious issue, and it will bring judgment. And he instructs us about this. I think one of the takeaways from this passage this morning, and I hope you'll do it with me, is it would be a really good idea to reflect on how we deal with other people. Are we kind to people? Are we patient with people? Are we forgiving with people? Are we loving with people? Or do we try to look for the best in people? Or, like the world we live in, is it just this constant angry battle, disagreement, ugliness, over and over and over again? It can, it can eat us alive. 
It can shape every relationship. It can infect every single thing we do, this this meanness, this anger, and and a deep anger. Jesus says it's a very, very big deal. So he instructs us. He actually has some very, very important uh, things to tell us in verse 23. Having underscored the seriousness of uh, anger in the kingdom, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother uh, is, has something against you, leave your gift there. And interesting. And, and imagine... Communion service on uh, March 19th. We're not having ne- next Sunday. We're having it on the third Sunday. Well, just imagine a service of Holy Communion where we are coming to the, the table of the Lord, the, the altar of Christ's sacrifice, a, a remembrance of his death on the cross for us. And here Jesus is actually saying, if you're doing that, if you're coming in, in, in an act of worship to me, and you remember, and his word choice is very striking here, He says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, therefore, and go be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift in this act of worship. He doesn't say, if you've done something against your brother, that that is also obviously true. There will be application on that side of the equation there as well. But actually, as Jesus describes it, he's saying, if there's someone in the fellowship that you're a part of who's angry at you, that you've, that you've done something, that they uh, uh, have done something against you, then it's important that you take the initiative to be reconciled with that person. It's really a very interesting idea. I mean, it's pictured in, a, in an actual bunch of people where we're all so busy seeking to be reconciled. We're all so busy to restore fellowship and to be one in Christ that we actually stop what we're doing and, and try to reflect that in our worship together. Uh, I don't know that it necessarily will always happen in the context of a worship service. The Lord uses that very vivid setting to make his point, but it can happen anytime, can't it? I mean, if we, if we realize that our brother has something against us, well, it's up to us to try and fix it. It's us to, up to us to take the initiative. It's our problem. We might say it's their problem. Let them fix it. As Jesus is describing the kingdom, he says, no, it's your problem. You fix it. You get involved. You, you work towards reconciliation. That's the theme of our worship service today, reconciliation. The church is the reconciled community. We're reconciled with God, and on the basis of our reconciliation with God, we're now reconciled to one another, and we're supposed to live that out. And it's a reconciliation that means not only uh, if you've done something mean to me, and I'm supposed to forgive you, and I've done something mean to you, and you're supposed to forgive me, it does include that, but it also means We're reconciled across races and ethnicities and world history and just all the different things over the millennia that have tended to separate us in Christ, in his kingdom. We are called to reconciliation. 
And our real worship, our authentic worship will reflect, reflect that. And if our worship doesn't reflect that, we might ought to hit the pause button and figure out how we can be living out the reconciled lifestyle, the reconciled life in the kingdom that we're meant to have. It's that important. So Jesus instructs us. Uh, that's not the only place he talks about this. If you, um, if you remember in Matthew chapter 18, one of the most uh, thoroughgoing descriptions of what this might actually look like, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 20, uh, the ESV editors have very helpfully labeled it for us. It says, if your brother sins against you. Same writer. Uh, same speaker. Matthew recording the words of Jesus speaking to a group of people that he loves. You see, his motivation is love. He loves his people. And in his kingdom, he's called us to be part of that reconciled community. Reconciled with God through him and reconciled with one another through him. And it's lived out in countless very, very practical ways. Paul writes books about it. Reconciliation between individuals, reconciliation between classes and cultures and ethnicities, reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles. That's the kingdom. And Jesus teaches us about it. He loves us enough to teach us about it. He wants us to know murder is awful. Murder is heinous. But he also wants us to know that right alongside murder is the heinousness and the awfulness of something you and I take far too lightly. Anger and hatred and insulting language. So that's point one. Point two, Jesus is not only teaching us that, uh, he's also helping us to know how to think of ourselves. If, if point one is instructed in the kingdom, what does life look like? That's point one. The second point is humbled. In the kingdom, how am I to think of myself? Jesus has several times mentioned the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they appear in verse 20, literally the verse before this passage. Um, if you ask the scribes and the Pharisees about their need for repentance, about their sin, about whether they were good people, the scribes and the Pharisees would immediately have said, well, I keep the law. I obey the rules. And it's all too simple for us to put our life in the kingdom in that category. I'm a rule keeper. I'm not going to have any police vans out in front of my house, most likely. You're not going to likely see me on court TV. So I'm a good person. It's interesting in... in uh, Dealing with people who come to who visit churches, for instance, you have the opportunity to talk to people. And one of the diagnostic questions we often use is, uh, if, if, uh, if God came to you today and said, uh, this is a question that we inherited from Evangelism Now, it's a popular PCA-based evangelism program. And um, the question is, if, if, if you were to appear before the Lord today at, say, the gates of heaven, and uh, he were to say to you, on what basis should I let you into my kingdom? Uh, 
how many people say, and I've, I've actually heard this with my own ears, maybe you've said this without maybe not thinking about it exactly, but people will say, well, I should, God would say I should come into his kingdom because I'm a very nice person, or I try to keep the rules, I keep the Ten Commandments, I obey the Bible, I try to obey the Bible, I, I try to be nice to people. And whenever someone answers it that way, I have to tell you, I know there's a problem. I know there's a problem. Because what Jesus is doing here and what he's going to do through the rest of these different stories and passages is he's going to be helping us to understand that we don't take sin seriously enough in in terms of not understanding the depth of our sin. Sin is never a matter of of a few things we do or don't do. That's the way we tend to think of it. We think of repentance as just quit doing a few bad things and maybe start doing a few good things. That's the way we tend to think of it. But embedded in the word repentance and embedded in this idea of the Christian life is that repentance is a relationship word. It actually means turning towards the Lord. And I can't stress that enough. It is not simply moral conformity. It's much deeper than that. Now, it will result in that. It will bring that out as the Spirit does what the Spirit does. But it doesn't, it's not limited by that. It's not even fundamentally that. Fundamentally, repentance and what Jesus is describing here is to turn humbly to the Lord. It's like the the sinner praying alongside the, the Pharisee. In the temple, the Pharisee was going on and on about what a great person he was and how righteous he was and how he was glad he wasn't like other people. And over in the corner, so like David Wamsley is now, David's in the corner back here. Back in the corner was a, a sinner who it says couldn't even lift up his eyes. He couldn't even look up. All he could do was say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I think what this passage is meant to do is to tell every single one of us who has not committed murder, unlike Alec Murdoch apparently, we haven't committed murder, but without a doubt this morning you have committed an act of rebellion in your heart that is on the same plane as murder. It's not identical, but it's on the same plane as murder. And as Jesus says, actually murder is rooted in the anger. Murder flows in some crazy way out of this rebelliousness in our hearts. And so Jesus Here in this verse, and he's going to do it over and over again when he talks about uh, lust. He's going to talk about uh, about retaliation. He's going to talk about uh, relationships. And we'll see this again and again. What he does is he underscores the fact that every single one of us is a sinner, broken and needy, whose hearts are rebellious against the Lord, whose behaviors reflect that. And so it humbles us. 
I, I, can't, I can't say of Bill Lovell, I'm better than a murderer. I'm different than a murderer at the moment. But I'm not better. I'm on that same plane. I'm a sinner. Actually, I am a sinner. You are a sinner. It, this rebelliousness in our hearts issues forth in all kinds of things that are ugly. All kinds of things that are no part of the kingdom. And so we're humbled. We're humbled. I love the song we just sang a minute ago. It's so beautiful. Uh, I love the songs Colin and the music team lead us in. Uh, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. I love that hymn. Um, Paul Hargrove and Larry Perry and I are going to go to General Assembly, and the man who wrote that hymn, Kevin Twitt, is going to be at General Assembly, I understand. And he's a teaching elder in the PCA. And I love what he's written to describe this realization of sin, this realization that we're broken, we're needy. Whatever our sin manifestation may be, we are all one in being humbled before the Lord. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, we're all in the same boat. Now, if, it, if Jesus' sermon stopped there, we probably wouldn't have a doxology at the end of the service, which they were going to have. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Uh, because even though we've been told the reality of sin, it's, it's real, God calls us to true transformation and behaviors that reflect his own holiness, even though that is true, and even though we're humbled by the fact that we are broken sinners who don't do what God wants us to do, yet we can rejoice. We can praise the Lord. Why do I say that? Well, I think it's some of the words the Lord uses at the end of this section. If you look at verse 25, he says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. It's really kind of a, an interesting transition. What, he started talking about murder. He transitions to talking about anger. And now at the end of this section, he transitions again and he puts us back in a courtroom. He puts us in court TV. He's talking about judges and guards and prisons and charges and debts. Why does he do that? What is his point? Well, this section and the Sermon on the Mount and everything that is said in the Gospel of Matthew is all under the heading of what Jesus does in just a few chapters. We'll be looking at this together at Palm Sunday and Easter. We'll be looking at these uh, sections together. If you look at Matthew chapter 27, where Jesus is delivered to Pilate, 
where he is crucified, where he dies on the cross. He does that to pay the penalty for someone else. Jesus never sins. Jesus never failed to do what he was supposed to do. And he always did exactly what he was supposed to do. He never sinned. So when he died on the cross, when he died there that awful death, when he endured capital punishment, he was paying a penalty, but it was not a penalty that he owed. If you look at the uh, affirmation of faith that we just recited together on page 5, I, I love it when we have the chance to look at things like the Heidelberg Catechism. It's on page 5. I'm going to just remind you what we read. Since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into God's favor? We said in response, God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment. That's a paraphrase of exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 5. We have to make full payment, either by ourselves or through another. Can we by ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. I am more in debt now than I was at the beginning of this sermon because my, my heart is so rebellious and my, my underlying beliefs and the, the sin in my heart is, is so tenacious and so pernicious that, that, you know, just over and over again, our indebtedness, our sin, the penalty that we owe for our sin it increases certainly daily. But even more often than that, it increases. So therefore, we can never pay our own debt because it's always growing, right? We can never pay it. Can any mere creature pay it for us? No. No mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath and deliver others from it. And I love this question. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? That's a good question for Lent. It's a good question when we reflect on sin and mortality. What kind of mediator must we seek? What kind of deliverer must we seek? And we answered it when we said, one who is a true and righteous man and that's what Matthew has been proving to us from chapter 1, verse 1. He was a true man. He was a righteous man who fulfilled the law. And yet, more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is at the same time true God. So Jesus is the only person who could pay the penalty that I owe and you owe and that we owe, the world owes. Only Jesus, because he alone is without sin. And so going back to the courtroom, going back to court TV and, and the idea of a prisoner being found guilty and whether the punishment is a 
big giant fine that he doesn't have the money to pay, or whether it's capital punishment, which is the punishment in the Bible and in many places for murder, who will pay for that? Who who is capable of paying the ultimate penalty, ultimately, to give us life? Well, if we don't turn to Jesus, if we don't turn and follow him, make peace as we approach the judge, if we don't do that, then we will never get out until we've paid the last penalty, the last little bit of punishment that we owe. Until, unless we turn to Christ, we will pay it all. But if we do turn to Christ, and that's where the Sermon on the Mount began. It, it began by Jesus calling people to repent, follow him, turn to him. And as they did that, Jesus says, he talked about the blessedness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This poverty, this humility, this aware of our inability to pay is actually, according to Jesus, the very bedrock of the kingdom of heaven about which Jesus is preaching. The very basis for the kingdom of heaven is knowing that we are too poor and too broken and too sinful. We mourn about it. We're humbled by it. We hunger and thirst for a righteousness we don't have. All of that comes from turning to Jesus And learning to walk with him. And that's the Christian life. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom to which you and I are called today.